G'day everyone. For those who came in late, you're listening to the X Band, the Phantom Podcast. Please subscribe to us via your favourite podcast player or YouTube. And don't forget to leave a review. 500 years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The Phantom, the ghost who walks. The Phantom, enemies beware, the Phantom's always there, but you won't find the Phantom. He finds you. We are the X-Band, the Phantom Podcast from Chronicle Chamber. Well, as you know, I'm not actually one of those guys, but they've let me steal the show again, maybe for the last time. But uh, if you're not familiar with X-Band, it's probably the best Phantom Podcast in the world. You can find their website at chroniclechamber.com and you can contact them via email, chroniclechamber at gmail.com. So what am I going to be talking about today? Well, today I'm going to be talking about my all-time favourite Phantom comic. Okay, my favourite Phantom story that I've ever read. This might shock some of you. You might know me as that guy who loves the 1930s Falcon Moore stories. And you might know me as that guy that loves Diana Palmer. So, this will shock you. My favourite Phantom story is not from the 1930s. It wasn't written by Falk. Falk. wasn't written by Falk. And even more unbelievably, it doesn't feature Diana at all. She's not even in the story. My favourite Phantom story is the topic of today's episode. But before I make that reveal, let's go back to 1988. The first Phantom comic I can ever remember reading was 920 Diamond Fever by Don Avenel and Jamie Valvey. Sorry about the pronunciations of the names. I, I don't know how to pronounce those names. But I was eight years old when I read this. Is it my favourite Phantom comic? No, it's not. I'm going to get to that soon. My mother had a friend who had some sons who were a bit older than I was. And whenever we visited them, I'd rummage through their comics. They had foot rock flats, Tintin, Asterix, and of course they had Phantom comics as well. One of their comics which they had, one of their Phantom comics, was Diamond Fever. And it was the first Phantom comic I ever read. I remember reading Diamond Fever down at their family's beach house, and ever since then I've associated the Phantom with summer holidays and the beach. Years later, and I mean decades later, the only thing I could remember about Diamond Fever were two scenes. One where a radio-controlled skeleton guards a treasure, and another where a baddie finds a pyramid made of diamonds and climbs up them, only to be engulfed by them and killed. The Phantom himself didn't really make a big impact on me. I was aware of him, um, and as a kid I knew he was a superhero. I, didn't, I, I put him in the same category with Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, and the other superheroes that I was aware of at the time. Back when I was eight, I'd started to buy comics, but I hadn't really committed to um, collecting any particular character. I had inherited a bunch of Tintin and Asterix from the family I mentioned before, and I talked my mum into buying me a few of my own comics. I have vague memories of having Green Lantern comics 
um, a few Archies, a Batman or two, some Transformer comics. So I had a, a few different types of comics. The first Phantom comic I ever bought with my own money was 919. This is actually the comic that came out before Diamond Fever. So Diamond Fever must have had some impact on me to have me race down to the local newsagent to buy a comic. Is The Cloud Pirates my favourite ever Phantom comic? Because it's my first one I ever bought? No, it's not. It's okay, but it's not my favourite. 919 is a team of Phantom and Sloy called The Cloud Pirates by Norman Worker and Kari Lepinen. I must have read that comic a hundred times at least. The story starts with the Phantom reading a story to Rex and Tom Tom. I had no idea who Rex and Tom Tom were. They hadn't appeared in Diamond Fever. In fact, none of the supporting characters, apart from Devil and Hero, uh, appear in this comic at all, so I wasn't familiar with the supporting cast. I remember being in absolute awe of Kari Lepinen's art. My first and most enduring hobby was drawing, so I was particularly obsessed with studying Kari's panels, and to this day he remains one of my favourite Phantom artists. Some time passed before I decided to add to my collection. I only had the one Phantom comic and I was content. The next time I was in a newsagent and had a spare dollar fifty, I picked up through 980, The Great Raptor of Rua. A story by Falk and Cy Barry. This is not my favourite Phantom story. The cover says it's a Falk Barry masterpiece, and I was familiar with the name Falk because it says Lee Falk, created by Lee Falk, on all of the covers, and it certainly did back with Diamond Fever. So I was aware of the name, but this was the first time I ever read a Lee Falk story. Now, I don't really consider it a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. I was, however, excited by Cy Barry's art, even though I couldn't really understand why the panels were so small and all his beautiful art was confined into these tiny little boxes. I guess I had no idea back then that this story would have originally been a newspaper strip. This was the first comic I had with a Phantom form, and for those who came in late origin of the Phantom before the story. I literally was someone who came in late, so I think it was a brilliant initiative um, for free to include that introduction page. I would read every word in that comic, including the ads and all the fine print. It was the story that introduced me to the Deep Woods, the Wambezi, the Bandar and Garan. The story was pretty crummy, but the Phantom was cool and I decided I would go back for more. Then it happened. I bought 928, The Beanstalk, and it became my favourite Phantom story ever. Why? I'll tell you. Okay, before you tell me it's not that good, let me tell you I understand that I'm biased, you know, I'm biased by nostalgia, but I have to say that after all these years, this story still stands up. It's a pretty good story. In fact, I think it's an excellent story. The Beanstalk was written by Don Avenel and illustrated by Hans Lindahl. Let me stop you right here. If Hans Lindahl is not one of your favourite all-time phantom artists, you need to get out of here. Alright? You need to wake up. If you don't think Hans Lindahl is one of the best phantom artists, you shouldn't be here. 
You should go away. I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. Just go, seriously. If you don't think Hans Lindahl is one of the best phantom artists, are you even a phantom fan? Seriously. Let's start with the cover. Perfection. A closely cropped reproduction of a Cyberry image. Just perfect. And these crazy fruit colours. One of the best covers I've ever seen. Inside cover, amazing vintage t-shirts. I always wished I had one of those. Page one, an incredible splash page by Hans Lindahl. He has a tendency, I think, to draw the fandom quite short. Shorter than all other depictions I've seen of him. But I'm still as excited by this art as when I was eight years old. I assume the lettering was done by someone at Fru, and it's pretty atrocious. The story starts at Boomsby Jail. The Phantom's alter ego, Mr. Walker, is talking to the director of the jail and making inquiries about an inmate there known as the Beanstalk. This is the first time I'd ever seen Mr. Walker, so when I picture Mr. Walker, I often think of him the way that Lindahl drew him in this story. The Beanstalk is depicted as tall, lean and sorrowful. The director of the jail tells Mr. Walker that the beanstalk is a dangerous troublemaker, but Walker observes that the beanstalk stands up against bullies and protects others. Walker asks to see his papers, and before long he interviews another inmate in the jail who relates the beanstalk's tragic story. Abandoned as a baby, taken in by a kindly but poverty-stricken woman and her abusive drunk husband, the beanstalk had a very hard early childhood. Kicked out and homeless at five, the beanstalk grew up on the streets but was detested by the other street kids. He is shown to have a strong moral compass, which puts him at odds with the other kids that rely on theft to survive. The beanstalk was an outsider, even in the slums. He was beaten by corrupt police and learned to hate injustice. He was accepted into a gang when he fearlessly defended them from punks. What is that punk wearing? This story was created in 1985, so perhaps this punk's look was inspired by the Mad Max movies. The Beanstalk reluctantly gets involved in the gang's criminal activities, but there are frequent pieces of evidence in the story that he is conflicted. A woman is badly injured during a heist, and the Beanstalk rushes to assist her, perhaps even saving her life but he is captured by the police and sentenced to 10 years hard labour in Boomsby Jail. After reviewing the case, Mr Walker tells the director of the jail that he will not rest until the beanstalk is pardoned. Walker hits brick wall after brick wall and is turned down by the president. This was the first mention of the president I ever saw. Walker is, however, granted access to the beanstalk. He tells the forlorn Beanstalk that while he can't shorten his sentence, he has a good job for him when he's freed, and encourages him to keep his spirit up. There's something I find so appealing about the Phantom's personality in this story. He's just a normal man, he's been facing knockbacks, but he keeps a positive attitude and shows compassion for the Beanstalk. One of my pet peeves about the Phantom is when creative teams show him wearing glasses and a hat over his hood. It grinds my gears. The first time Walker was seen in this comic, you could clearly see his ears and even the sides of his eyes. Now, he looks ridiculous. 
I know this is a trope that goes back to the 30s, but it's not a good one and I hate it. There's a jailbreak and Walker is taken captive. The escapees plan to escape through the window in the Beanstalk's cell. Somehow they have acquired some explosives and as they are positioning them on the bars, Walker whispers to Beanstalk, we must try to stop them before springing into action and taking one of them down. His attempt to capture the inmates is cut short when he is struck on the back of the head and falls unconscious. I reckon this is the first time I ever saw any superhero knocked out. I've since noticed that in virtually every teen phantom and story, at least at one point, the phantom will be knocked out in the same way. You think I'm joking? Read through your team phantom and comics and see how many times he gets king hit. It happens more than you expect. The beanstalk protects the unconscious Mr. Walker and suggests they take him as a hostage. He does this only in a desperate attempt to save his life. The leader of the group, Rogue, has no intention to take a hostage, but makes Beanstalk scale down the side of the jail and the cliff it's on, carrying Mr. Walker to test the strength of the rope. Rogue and his gang have no love for the Beanstalk whatsoever. Guards in the watchtower spot Beanstalk and the Phantom, descending the rope and open fire. The rope is cut and they tumble down into the ocean. They survive the fall, but the Phantom is still unconscious. Despite all of this, his hat and his glasses remain on. How do these glasses remain on at all? Rogue and his crew tell the director that Walker was the mastermind behind the escape and an order to bring them back dead or alive is issued. Police and search dogs are sent on the Beanstalk's trail. The guards call off the search after they machine gun a crocodile in the swampland, believing it is Walker and Beanstalk. They find Walker's hat in the bloody water and congratulate themselves on a job well done. An hour later, the Phantom starts to stir as he is being carried by the Beanstalk. He is disoriented and has no idea what has occurred until Beanstalk fills him in. They stub away on the back of a truck that conveniently stops right near where they are hiding. This massive coincidence is referred to as fate. I wouldn't say it's lazy writing because I love this story so much, but it is very convenient. This is perhaps the only thing in this story that dips under being perfect. Perfect, yeah, that's a big call, but I do love this story. Many hours later, the Phantom, still in his Mr. Walker trench coat, leads the Beanstalk to meet some of his friends, Hero and Devil. For the first time in the story, other than the splash page, the Phantom is introduced in his costume. This is in page 21. The Phantom tells Beanstalk they have urgent business to attend to and they race off on Hero's back. Beanstalk receives praise for the first time in his life. He's told that he is brave and selfless. His art though, it is magnificent. As they ride, the Phantom tells Beanstalk about a jungle tribe renowned for its charity and kindness. They are brave warriors, but despite this, jealous neighbouring tribes have robbed and terrorised them, and their chief is dying. The Phantom tells Beanstalk that he wants him to be the new chief, to help and protect them. When they arrive at the village, they find a violent conflict taking place. 
the beanstalk immediately notices that these people have the same distinctive features he has. The phantom tells him these are the stalk people and confirms that beanstalk is one of them. The beanstalk joins his people in the fight and is instrumental in driving the hostile neighbours out. Meanwhile, the phantom stops the chief of the raiders from setting fire to the stalk village. Bear in mind, this is one of my first ever phantom comics, so I still really don't know what his deal is with the jungle. I was amazed that the phantom simply turns up, snatches the torch from the chief and stamps on it, and the chief and all his men freak out. They don't even resist him. They are done. The stork people are victorious and want to kill the captives to send a strong message, but Beanstalk stops them. He says, We are the stork tribe. Brave in battle, humble in victory, we must always show mercy. The stork people are like, okay, I guess this guy we've never seen before is our new boss. And he speaks our language, which is pretty convenient. The captives are stoked, and one sucks up like an absolute champ. Not only a mighty warrior, but a wise and noble leader. Thank you. What a suck. But we'd all do the same in his situation. Beanstalk says, in future we will live together in peace and friendship. It's a Christmas miracle. The phantom brings the beanstalk before the dying chief, and you guessed it, it's his father. Not only that, the chief of the other tribe, his conscience kicks in, and he admits that he kidnapped the beanstalk 25 years ago when he was an infant, leaving him outside a house in Morristown. He was jealous because he had no sons. What a jerk. A beautiful father-son moment occurs, and then the chief takes his dirt nap. We get another splash page where the beanstalk is crowned king by none other than the phantom. This phantom guy seems to have some pull in the jungle. He's referred to as the great friend of the jungle, the ghost who walks. There's a very cheesy line from the phantom about an ugly duck becoming a swan, but I'm going to forgive it because it other than this, the dialogue in this story is on point. In the very last page, Walker returns to the presidential palace. He's still a fugitive. The president demands to see him immediately. This is the first time I've ever seen President Luaga, and I, I really had no idea what his relationship with the Phantom was. At first, the president blasts him, and then they're besties. The Phantom makes uh, a case for the beanstalk being exonerated, and President Luaga agrees, but insists that the beanstalk return for an official discharge from prison, from jail. The last panel implies the stork will be back, and I seem to remember there was a cameo from his character in a later story, but he's never had a major role in the story since then. So why do I love this story so much? Is it simply because I read it when I was eight years old? That's possible. But I think there's a really good moral story in this, uh, in this Phantom comic. I think it's a really strong, powerful message. The next Phantom story I bought was 931, which is actually another story by Avenel and Lindale. It's a good story, but it's nowhere near as good as The Beanstalk. By this stage, I was officially collecting The Phantom. I had no idea at that time, but I'd started collecting at the best possible time because Fru had just entered into their renaissance. The next stories that were released were Little Tomma, 
The Prisoner of the Himalayas, Adventure in Algiers, The Shark's Nest, The Slave Traders, The Golden Circle. Can you even imagine? These stories, these early folk more stories, they're all masterpieces. And I was able to read them in the order that they were released, the order they were written. It was absolutely the golden age. But what's also very notable about that list of comics is The Prisoner of the Himalayas. That story is the first time I'd ever seen Diana Palmer. Up until then, now I, I now had quite a few comics, but Diana Palmer had never appeared in any of these ones. So reading that story, The Prisoner of the Himalayas, and seeing Diana for the first time, that was great. And of course, she appears in a lot of those other ones I mentioned as well. Reading all those folk stories in the correct order was an absolute treat. And I'm not kidding or exaggerating when I say those stories are masterpieces. After that amazing string of reprints, Fru published uh, Kashamba. Kashamba? Not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, this was actually the first phantom story that I didn't like. This was actually the first phantom story I ever read where the phantom was married to Diana. Not only that, they had two kids, two twins. I couldn't believe it. I had a pile of phantom comics. I knew who Diana was, but this was the first time I saw that he had kids. And that kind of speaks, I guess, to the way through um, what their printing schedule is. They print all these stories all over the place from different decades. So a new reader like myself at eight, I come in, so suddenly the phantom is single, and then suddenly he's married, and now he's got two kids. So it was a bit, bit of a surprise. And still, by this stage, I'm not really, really familiar with who Rex and Tom Tom are. They sort of appear and disappear. Kachamba was an okay story, but I don't like this new mean phantom. I think there's a really dramatic difference between the way he was depicted in the 30s and 40s to way the way that Falk wrote him in the 90s and late 80s. I didn't really like the characterization of the Phantom much in this story at all. Luckily, this story was followed by Diana Aviatrix Lost and then the utter masterpiece, The Mysterious Girl. I better stop there, otherwise I'll go on forever. There's probably one other comic I want to talk to you about just very quickly since I've spoken about one of my favourite stories and because it's uh, from Team Phantom. I want to show you another non-folk story which I probably count as probably one of my second favourites. This story, um, 948, The Raid in San Luis. This is a gem. It was written by Michael Tyrese. Sorry about the pronunciation and art by Kari Lepinen. It's perhaps my second favourite non-folk story. Maybe one day if the x band don't mind, I might talk about this comic. I think there's a lot in this one to unpack and there's just so much to love. It's a really charming story. Really, really good. Even though it's not a folk story, in a lot of ways it reminds me of folk's classic storytelling. Um, I think that the author, Michael Thierry's uh, he must have been inspired by some of those classic adventures. You, maybe you should dig it out of your collection, um, have a read of it. While you're at it, dig out this one. Why, why don't, I'm going to set you some holiday homework, alright? Read these two if you've got them. If you don't, get them. 
And while you're at it, why not go through your collection and dig out 1850 the day of the races, the story I wrote, just for the lols. Well, I've spoken enough. That should just about do it. I've spoken about my favourite and maybe my second favourite non-folk story. And I've spoken about that magnificent renaissance of fruit publishing when they published all those 1930s gems. So there's nothing more for me to say other than happy phantoming.